The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Good morning, Park Church. This morning's scripture is from Revelation chapter 22, starting in verse 6 through the end of the chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be a Bible somewhere in the pew around you. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take one with you today as a gift. Again, Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22, verse 6. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I want to mention a few things to you, and then we will get into this final chapter of Revelation. First, uh, our understanding of what the local church is, is unlike most other institutions in the world. Um, in that we, we, we believe the local church is called to be a family in which we belong to one another, we serve one another, we love one another, um, in which we're bound together, not just uh, by a common set of services or goods that the church provides, but rather um, our lives being knit together um, in community with one another. Um, a, a few of the implications of that, two in particular I want to mention to you this morning, is, is, is one is this. 
Um, God has endowed each of you um, with particular gifts, particular callings. Um, men and women in this room are called to wield your lives for the flourishing of this community, of this body. And so I, I want to consistently challenge you, call you, um, to find a way to use the gifts that God's put in you to, to serve the people around you, to serve this community, um, whether that's through gospel communities, whether that's just through, I mean, discipling relationships in which you're pouring into other people in this church body, whether it's volunteering in part kids. Um, we as a family want to call everyone to participate in, in the life of this church. Um, secondly, um, we, we survive as, as a community, as a body, as, as all of us give generously to, um, give generously financially to the life of this church. And so if Park Church is your home, if this is your community um, that you belong to, um, the mission that you're a part of in our city, we believe that the Bible calls all of us to give financially to the mission of God um, through Park Church. And we encourage you both to find a way to serve um, and, and to give financially to the mission here. Um, I want to mention, secondly, uh, tomorrow night and Tuesday night um, from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m., um, we are hosting our premarital counseling seminar. Um, that is, if, if you're wanting to walk through our premarital process here at Park Church, the first step in that process is this seminar that's happening Monday night and Tuesday night. Um, if you'd like more information on that or to sign up, um, you can do so over in the corner, the dresser, the info dresser. People are smiling at me and it's making me feel a little weird. So stop. Frown at me. Okay. Um, so 6.30, 8.30 tomorrow night and Tuesday night. Um, you can sign up for that over in the corner after the service. Last thing I want to mention to you, we are an elder-led church, um, which means that there's not one person in charge. I'm not in charge. Gary's not in charge. But there's a body of, of elders that God has called and set apart to, to lead this church in faithfulness to the gospel, um, in, in faithfulness to the mission that we believe God has called us to. Um, we uh, have five, four elders right now. We've got three additional elders um, who are finishing up um, the eldership process. Uh, this month kind of marks the culmination of what has been many months of meetings and um, interviews and readings and writing papers, um, those kinds of things. And so um, I, I want to mention to you these three guys' names um, that you might be praying for them. We're going to be introducing them to you in the coming weeks uh, via email here as well on Sundays and Lord willing. Um, kind of after they've, they've completed all of their tasks and interviews, um, we'll stand them up and ordain them as elders and pastors at Park Church Denver. Um, but this month is going to be relatively intense for them. Um, and so we would just ask that you pray for these three men. Um, first is Eric Fraser, uh, then Gary McQuinn and Joel Olympic. So please be praying for these three guys, their families. We'll be giving you more information about them in the coming weeks. Um, but this month is going to be a big month for them. Um, and we're excited um, as well to celebrate together at the end of this month um, God's kindness, God's grace to, to, to bring these men to help lead, to bring their families um, to help lead and shepherd this body as we move forward. So let me pray and we will turn to Revelation 22. Father, this, this book is a gift to us. I mean, you, you told us at the very, very beginning of Revelation in chapter 1 that this book comes to us as a blessing. It comes as something that imparts life. It's something that, that, that transforms our affections, that transforms our very lives. And then even now, as we come to the close of this book, you tell us again um, that those who keep it will know blessedness. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit might come 
your spirit would do what, what only your spirit can do, um, and, which is move this from, from merely an intellectual kind of engagement with a very strange book, um, God, that your spirit might come and create um, where, where this where this text creates thirst, where it calls for thirst, your spirit might come and create it in this room. But where this, where this text calls us, commands us, that the, the orientation of our life would be to call out that you might come. I, I pray now that this would be merely intellectually grasped, that your spirit might come and create in us a longing that you would come. But where this text calls us to come and drink, I pray, oh Lord, that, that your spirit would come and call us to come and drink, where this text calls us to, to, to see our robes, to, to wash our robes in the blood of the Lamb. I pray that your Spirit might compel us this morning to come and wash our robes in the blood of the Lamb. Lord God, save us from mere intellectualization and cause us to enter into the, the, the beauty and the power and the blessedness of this book. In your name we pray, amen. I remember distinctly the assignment that my literature professor made my sophomore year in college. She um, had, we had, we had to go buy our books at the bookstore, and one of the books that we had to purchase for this class um, was a book called Ulysses by James Joyce. Now, for those of you who have um, never read Ulysses by James Joyce, uh, you should feel ashamed today. The reason you should feel ashamed is that GQ, as well as a number of other magazines, have all said um, that this book is one of the hundred books that every human being um, should read, one of the most, hundred most important books written in the English language. And so it might surprise you to know that as I took this course, this literature course, my sophomore year in college, and we were required to read Ulysses by James Joyce, I found it to be one of those books that is awful. And by awful, I don't mean that it was a bad story. Um, I, I, I don't mean that um, the, 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 the way that the paragraphs were arranged or, or that there wasn't something compelling about the narrative. I'm actually meaning that I, I, don't, I, I couldn't actually identify a narrative. Um, it, it was one of those books where it was as if um, James Joyce had decided to play a trick on the entire world and we all bought it. It, it was sentences constructed like pillar, rain, tree ran wet <laughs> for thousands of pages on and on and on in fact um uh gq said it's one of those books that everybody wants to carry around at some point everybody wants to have on their bookshelf at some point um and uh nobody has read it and those who did had no idea what they were reading um and I remember coming to the end of that course and um, the end of that particular section of the course um, having uh, literally felt like I just wasted enormous numbers of hours just reading a gigantic list of words with an occasional sentence making sense. I'm getting the end of it hoping, just hoping that finally we would come to class and this brilliant literature professor um, who'd walked us through a number of really, really important, beautiful works um, would now um, finally kind of unlock for me, unlock for all of us in this class um, what exactly had taken place as we read this book. And all I remember her saying over and over and over again is this is a very, 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 this is a very important book. It's very important. All of you should have read this book. It's very important. It's very important. Very important. But my fear as we arrive at the end of the book of Revelation 
is that, is that after image upon image upon image, these strange images, actually very strategically, very intentionally placed one after the other, um, but, but, but strange images, right? Things that are, are hard to find anywhere else in the Bible, um, uh, things that are, are some of the strangest languages, some of the hardest language, some of the most beautiful language, some of the most hopeful ideas, some of the most disturbing ideas that are to be found anywhere in the Bible. We've been bombarded over and over and over again since last August with with image upon image upon image upon image. And my fear for us is that as we get to the end of the book of Revelation, that, that our response will be much like my response after finishing Ulysses. I don't know what just happened, but I'm really glad it's over. And I can finally bring my friends to church again. That, that, that after all of these kind of bombarding images that, man, that have been coming at us from every possible angle, um, that, that, we would, that we would walk out of here today and, and, and in essence kind of shrug our shoulders and go, I mean, there were some, there were some points that made sense. Maybe um, there were some beautiful points. There were some points I'm not quite sure what to do with, um, but, but it's over. So we can move on to the Psalms. We can kind of move on with part church's life and, and everything's, everything's better now. My prayer for us today is that God in his kindness wouldn't allow us to walk out like that. You see, uh, John at the very, very beginning of the book and then stepping back into it here, man, holds up to us with, with, with clear, compelling, even in this week, threatening language. A, a, a call to meditate on this book and to consume this book and to, to, to let these images not just be something in, in our weird past. I mean, it's been a, um, a, a long, strange trip, right? Um, but, but, but now we actually, and yes, that was definitely a very intentional reference to the Grateful Dead. Um, but, but, but rather that, that, we would, that we would enter into these images once again um, and, and see and, and receive and enter into the blessedness that, that Jesus through John promises us and in these, um, even in these closing paragraphs. But one of the things that stands out as we step into chapter 22 is this, is this language that's so strong about what's been happening in, in this apocalypse, in this book of Revelation. But listen with me again, starting in verse 6. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. It's as though he's saying this book needs to be abided and it is trustworthy. You, you can base your life on it. You, you can root your whole existence on this book. It's trustworthy. It's true. If you keep the words of this book, if you keep these strange images, if you hold them, if, you, if you're saturated with them, if you abide in them, then blessedness, um, the, the very blessing of God is to be upon your life. But then, but then consider the the other side of that same coin. Um, look with me at verse 18. John says this, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. 
Here John says, don't add anything to what I've written. Don't take anything away from what I've written. Eat this as I've provided it to you. Don't, don't add your own elements. Don't, hey, they're, 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 let's be honest. Like, there are things in this book that are hard. Really hard. Elements of which are going to come up again today. The idea of God's judgment. The idea of God's wrath and hell. But we don't like to talk about these things. But, but John won't shut up about them. We, we uh, consider the, 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 the pervasive theme of God's sovereignty, even in our suffering. These are uncomfortable truths for us. They're, they're, they're difficult truths for us. They're truths that if we're honest, and we, I, I will admit it, like oftentimes um, these, these things don't always feel good or feel helpful to us. John says don't take one of them off the table. I've spoken often in the last few months about my disdain, and disdain is probably not strong enough a word, for broccoli, particularly broccoli that's been steamed. I hate it. It's disgusting. I hate the smell of it. I hate the thought of the smell of it. I hate imagining what it would be like to anticipate smelling it when I walk into my back back door. I can't stand it. But but the problem's not with me, right? Sorry. (laughs) <laughs> the problem is with me. The problem is not with the broccoli. <laughs> like God has, has taken in his kindness, please hear me, in his kindness, in his mercy, in his grace, in his love, he set a table for us. And he said, eat all of it. Don't add anything to it. Don't take anything away from it. Abide in these words, in these visions, in this understanding of who I am and what I'm doing in the world. Um, there is this, this beautiful command, this, this, this idea that we are to keep the words of this book. Um, the, the, the idea here is more than obedience. It's a kind of dwelling in this book, a kind of living in this book. It's kind of, uh, a kind of being saturated, experiencing the fullness of these images. And I think to understand it, there's this strange interaction that, that, that John has with this angel. Um, it happens in verse 8. I, John, the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers of the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. It's it's startling, right? You read that and you go, come on, John. You just saw heaven. Now you're going to worship an angel. I I would know not to do that. Um, It's kind of a confusing reaction. I think it's there. To show us what it means to keep the words of this book. To to show us the posture that this book actually is meant to create for us. You see, John didn't just get kind of a propositional list of of things that are true about history. He didn't get kind of this this prophetic roadmap about how these things are going to relate. And now he's kind of recording for us this sort of of strange roadmap. Um, He he didn't just get some sort of intellectual grasp of what was being said. No, he he was drawn up into uh, the, the existential experience of what it is to see God, to see the throne, to see his glory, his holiness, his beauty, his sovereignty. 
sovereignty. He was in the Spirit, he tells us in chapter 1. This is no mere study of what might happen in the future. It was an experience of the very real and powerful and holy and, dare I say, overwhelming presence of God. I think what we see happening here with John and this angel is John is so overwhelmed, so drawn up into the things that he's described for us that he has to worship someone. I think um, that the folly of worshiping an angel is not to be, don't, don't do that. <laughs> but this is how this book is meant to be experienced and to be remembered. It not merely is a set of propositional truths that we hold on to, but to be awash with image upon image upon image upon image of, of confession and song and, and prophetic hope and, and devastating warnings and to see all of them over and over and over again and with such power, with such spirit-endowed experience that, that all we know to do in response to all of it is fall down and worship. This is why God's given us the book of Revelation. Not so you can take your newspaper and kind of map out the next seven years. But you might lose yourself in these glorious images of God and the Lamb. And your life would be overwhelmed with a sense of awe, a sense of glory, and a sense of worship. And this chapter beautifully begins to weave together a few themes that, that, have, that have kind of um, have been the stream we've been in for these last 10 months, nine months. And I want us to, to, to just observe a few of them here in chapter 22 um, that, that we might leave here, we might end kind of our, um, our journey through this book um, but with a few key ideas, a few key themes um, that, that would be the ground and the, the support for our worship, no matter what we're doing, whether it's Psalms starting next week or wherever we end up in the fall. That our, our worship, our delight, our love for God, our, our very, the very nature of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus it would be grounded and rooted in the images that John has set before us. So, so right off the bat, beginning in verse 16, I want to draw out for you what I think is the central theme in the whole book of Revelation um, that, that John pulls us back to, um, or rather Jesus pulls us back to, um, right here at the end. In verse 16, Jesus says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. At the end of the day, the book of Revelation is about Jesus. It's, it's about his power, his sovereignty, his beauty, his glory. As he's described here, it's about his absolute authority as king. It's about his sovereign reign over all of history, of every tongue, tribe, and nation, that everything belongs to him. He is king. He is the roots and the shoot. He is the, the foundations of, of God's kingly authority. And he is the, the full fruition of all the promises of God that he would send a king to make everything right one day. And he is the bright morning star. 
He is the dawning of the beauty and the goodness and the light of God upon our world. Do you remember the visions of Jesus we've seen? Do you remember chapter 1? Um, Jesus appears to John clothed um, in the garments of a priestly king or a kingly priest. And and surrounding him is glory and beauty itself. It is an image um, not just of some ancient wise teacher, but of God himself with flesh. That a, a sword came out of his mouth and reminding us that the words of Jesus aren't like our words. They accomplish all the purposes that he sends them out to accomplish. His words are true. His words are trustworthy. And his words have power. Then do you remember chapter 4? We could spend all day on chapter 4 and 5. We might. The, the vision there of the throne room and the one who is seated on the throne, the Father who's, who has spoken to existence everything that is, been surrounded by the universe, singing his praises, worshiping him for his holiness, his, his glory, his sovereignty. And that in his right hand was a scroll. And the scroll is sealed up with seven seals. And, and, and this scroll represents his purposes, his plans, all of his promises. His promises that one day death would be no more. His promises that sin itself would be turned back. His promises that he would gather to himself a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Uh, Promises that the earth would be flooded with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That, that, That his beauty, his goodness, his grace, his righteousness would flood everything. And at this scroll, the scroll that would accomplish his purposes, his plans. No one can open it. An angel shouts with a loud voice, who is worthy to come and open the scroll? Who is worthy to accomplish the purposes of God? Who will finally push back death? Who will finally come and end mankind's rebellion against God? Who will finally come and establish beauty and righteousness and goodness? Silence. In the midst of the silence, you hear the weeping of John as he feels the despair in that moment. And an elder comes to him and says, Weep no more, for the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. Do you remember what he saw? All the power of this moment. This this lion, this conquering king who comes to to vanquish the enemies of God. This conquering king who who comes to accomplish all of God's purposes. This this conquering king who's finally the only one, the only one ever worthy to take this scroll and actually see God's purposes, his promises fulfilled. Do you remember what John saw? A lamb standing as if slain. Here is no king come to bash us into submission, but a bloody lamb, sacrifice for our sins, atoning for our rebellion, that we might know and love God. And a song breaks out. You remember the harps, which are really banjos? Who wants harps? And, and the loudest 
song and celebration of this conquering lion, lamb, this bloody one. Um, and, and the songs begin to pour out, that songs that, that with his blood, he's purchased us, he's redeemed us, he's rescued us, he's washed us. And not just us, but, but a people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. Now, this book is about Jesus. And do you remember this vision of Jesus in chapter 19? This rider on a white horse who is king of kings and lord of lords. That name is written on his thigh. A sword proceeds, a sword of judgment proceeds from his mouth and his robe is drenched, drenched with the blood of rebellious kings. Those who would not receive his mercy, those who would not know his grace, and this, this conquering king, this lamb who was slain for our sins also comes to judge with absolute authority. And then do you remember chapter 21? This Jesus, this glorious Jesus, proclaiming over all the universe, behold, I make all things new. This book is about Jesus. You will search in vain for roadmaps and for prophetic connections to, to, to make between some sort of political leader today. Oh, if you go to this book, go looking to behold your King and your Savior. He is everywhere in this book. But this book is, as it tells us about the nature and the character of Jesus, it also reveals to us what Jesus is doing in history, what he's doing in the world kind of reaching its culmination, um, as we saw a few weeks ago in chapter 21, where he announces and actually enacts um, his purposes to renew everything, and to, to flood the earth with his goodness, to flood the earth with his beauty, to flood the earth with his justice. That all of our longings for, 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 for beauty to envelop all of this world, it will one day come true. Our, our, our sense that things are not as they should be. I mean, God comes to restore all that's been broken and lost. But he does so through judgment. Judgment's not a, a, a theme we often like to talk about. But it's been unavoidable in this book. Um, theme after theme, picture after picture, dividing the world in two. And so we saw the, um, the, the city of the Lamb, the, the, the New Jerusalem. We also saw Babylon. And we saw these two women, the, the great prostitute, the one who deceives the nations and draws them into idolatry and immorality. And on the other hand, we saw the bride of the Lamb, the one made pure, the one washed, the one clothed in the glory of God. And we saw divide upon divide upon divide, um, bringing home the truth, the unavoidable truth that God will make all things new by bringing his judgment. But, but we see even in this text, look, look with me, I'm starting in verse 10. And he said to me, 
Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates, outside of the dark and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. We, we commonly think that, that the way that God judges the world is to say that this group, this is you guys today, you are the righteous ones. You're doing all the good things. Good job. You people, you're doing bad things. And there's a lot of you because it's that side too. And you're doing wicked, evil, terrible things. You're bad people. And so these people will get to enter and, and it matches the, it's beautiful. Um, you will get to go into this beautiful, beautiful city. Um, you people will have to go over there where that wolf is. It's terrifying. And I honestly don't know where the wolf came from. And it's really concerned me the entire series. But there he is. You're doomed. So, uh, so that's how the divide happens. But that's never how the divide happens. It's happened again and again and again. There are outside the evildoers. Um, as this text says, those who simply will be permitted to keep on being filthy, to keep on doing evil, to keep on loving falsehood, to keep on persisting in their refusal to receive and to love the mercy and the goodness of God. And... There will be those not, not those who did enough right things. No, those whose robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. John has drawn this theme out for us three separate times. Each time, um, the, the clean robes, that they are not... Um, they're not clean because of our efforts. They're not clean because we've done enough good things. They're not clean because we've somehow earned status before God that now he can love us because we're clean enough. No, they are robes always, always, always cleansed by the blood of Jesus himself. His blood comes to wash us. The two foundational problems in the universe for every single one of us in this room is shame and pride. We spend our lives saying with Spurgeon, scrubbing our robes, saying, out damn spot. Can I make myself clean? Can I make myself worthy to receive the love of this God? Can, can I somehow achieve righteousness? Can I somehow make myself good enough or achieve enough or successful enough that I'll have arrived at heaven, arrived at my version of heaven, arrived at my version of the ideal self? And yet all of us, every single one, no matter how successful you may find yourself or think yourself to be in that project, find ourselves haunted, haunted by shame. That we can never measure up. We can never do enough. Terrified that if the secret thoughts of our hearts were exposed, we'd be seen for the frauds that we are. 
And so this judgment terrifies us. But the promise of the gospel is that we receive clean robes, covering over our shame, receiving as a gift God's kindness, God's love, God's grace, thereby destroying all pride. Jesus will come and make all things new. And the question remains for each of us, have we washed our robes? But this book, at its heart, creates a certain model of what does it mean to be the people of God in the midst of the world. A little over a year ago, as we were dreaming and praying and thinking about what God would have us be about this year, the, the fundamental theme that arose in our times of prayer is how do we resituate, re-understand ourselves as the people of God living in Denver at this time, given a mission, given a certain posture, given a certain understanding of what we're supposed to be in the midst of this world. And, and Revelation, I, I, would, I, I would actually argue more than any other book to be found in the Bible, amen, helps to situate us as the people of God living in this place and this time. And so, John gives us a picture of that particular posture. He says, again, and what I, I can't help but think is one of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And then jumping to verse 20, and he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. If you remember when we started the book of Revelation, that we, we saw that Jesus was personally speaking to the seven churches in Asia, each of them facing a different set of circumstances. Uh, some of these churches had, had just undergone tremendous persecution and suffering. They'd seen family members die. They'd seen, uh, they'd seen friends dragged off into prison. They'd seen others I mean, given over into slavery. And God comes to these churches. Jesus comes to these churches, his churches, and he says to them, it's not been in vain. It hasn't been an accident. I am at work in the midst of all of it. Hold fast to my name. Trust in my work. He comes to other churches who, who seem on the outside, everything seems fine. They're wealthy and they're embraced by the community. If only they'll just compromise a little. They'll just negotiate a bit with the claims they make for Jesus. Um, lest they be cast out, lest they face the same persecution that their brothers and sisters down the road had to endure. And Jesus' word comes to them again and again in those first chapters. Hold fast to my name and confess who I am. Don't negotiate. Don't, don't compromise. And hold fast to my lordship. Hold fast to all that I am. Confess me as Lord and King and God and Savior. Even if it costs you your lives, it will not be in vain. He comes to those who are holding fast and faithful, who are looking down at, at, at coming months and weeks and, and, and years 
of persecution, of suffering, of difficulty. And he says to, the, to them again, oh, hold fast. It, it will be but for a little while. It will be suffering, but it will not be in vain. It will not be an accident, and it will end. Hold fast to my name. Worship me. Love me. Trust me. Confess in the face of all of it, even at the cost of your lives, who I am. Delight in what I am doing in your midst. And again and again, the words came to these churches and they come to us. Suffer with hope. Endure with faithfulness. Your suffering, your difficulties are not in vain. Trust and cling and delight in who I am. That Jesus comes to us again and again in this book. And he does not promise that there will be no hard times. He doesn't promise that you will not sit in a doctor's office and him tell you that you have cancer. He does not promise that you're not going to sit in funeral homes and beside hospital beds. He doesn't promise that we're not going to see children die. We're not watch one another die. He's not promising that you will not be betrayed. He's not promising that you won't have an accident someday that it costs you the use of your legs. No, he says to us again and again and again, hold fast. None of it's in vain. Suffer with hope. For I make all things new. But we have been trying to explore ways to tell the stories of people in our church um, that, that, that demonstrate the grace of God, that demonstrate in particular ways um, that, that the beauty of what God calls us to. Um, some of you know the story, um, John and Kate's story from the last couple of years. Um, we we, we want to show just a short video of their story because I, I, I know a few other stories in our body that demonstrate what, what this looks like on the ground. So let, let's watch this. When I got to the hospital two days after the accident happened, um, first thing out of John's mouth as I walked up is, if I don't believe that he's sovereign and good now, I never did. He is sovereign and he is good. He has not promised to wield that sovereignty in the ways that you think he should in your life. But he has promised this. That he sings over us to do us good. That his grace cleanses us of all sin that our greatest good will be ours, that we will know him, that we will see him, that we will walk with him. His call um, running all over this Bible, his call even in this room now is come. Come and drink. Come, find all of your thirst satisfied in me. Come and drink. Come and buy what you cannot purchase. No, come Come and receive. This is the call to follow Jesus. Not that your life would be what you want your life to be. No, but that you would have more than you could have ever hoped. That you will know the living God. That he will sing over you as a father, delighting in you, loving you, and calling you forever and ever and ever 
to himself. Let's pray. So Jesus, even as you call us to come and drink, we respond with with the call of this text, come, Lord Jesus. Come, make us whole. Come, make all things new. Come, in the midst of our groaning, in the midst of our longing. Uh, Come, in the midst of our sin. Come, in the midst of our confusion. Come, in the midst of our brokenness. Make us new. And so God, may we feel this morning, thirsty. Thirsty to partake of you, thirsty to be cleansed by you, thirsty more than anything to dwell with you, to be with you. And so come. In your name we pray, amen.